This Dharma Talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. Day two. I just want to remind everybody that tomorrow there will be no Dharma talk. And uh, I hope we can maintain and extend our silence. Um, so there will be no Dokusan or practice discussion. And uh, just encourage everyone to use as few words when you do need to communicate as possible and consider whether you need to use any words um, if it's necessary to express anything in words. Thank you all for your great efforts. Servers, kitchen, sitters, doans, everyone. So yesterday I read some stories that we have about Sekito Kisen uh, who wrote these two important texts uh, in the form of poems that we chant and uh, study. And um, as I said yesterday, during the practice period that we are now concluding, um, we studied the one that's usually regarded as the most important one, the Sandokai, translated as the merging of difference and unity or harmony of difference and equality. And today I wanna to talk about the other text uh, which uh, Master Sekito wrote when he arrived at South Mountain and set up uh, his solitary and simple uh, hermitage on a rock ledge. Um, his Chinese name, Shito, actually means rockhead. <laughs> Often Zen masters take their names from their mountains, so he took his name from his ledge. You apparently can go and see this ledge still exists. So the Japanese title for this poem is Soanka, and we chanted it today, this morning at uh, morning service. Um, it means, Soanka means grass hermitage song. And the translation that we use is by a teacher in our lineage, Reverend Tigan Dan Layton, who is the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Temple in Chicago. And I think I mentioned yesterday, this chant, the, the grassroof hut, is not in most chant books. In fact, we have to we had to <laughs> add it to ours. We really need to add it to our chant book uh, permanently. Although everything is impermanent. <laughs> anyway, um, the translation we use is by Taigen. And um, we started chanting it in the temple where I trained in North Carolina after Taigen came and visited us and taught about this text. And we chanted it in the morning, and it happened to be the day when I was assigned to be doshi or officiating priest. Wednesday, four years, <laughs> this was the chant that I chanted with everyone else who was there that morning. So I memorized it pretty quickly from you know constantly uh, chanting it every week. It became you know part of my embodiment of being a priest in training. I also found it was really easy to memorize, and I know some of you here have memorized it, you already know it. Here at AZC, 
we had a talk by Teigen during the pandemic, and he talked on this text. And so we've been chanting it here twice a month. So I'm glad some of you are familiar with it already. And we've also been chanting it during Ango every week in the morning. I think a lot of people immediately fall for this poem. You know, somehow it aligns with our longing. Even though we love our busy lives, which are filled with interesting activities and places and things and people, we long for our life to be simple, to be peaceful. We long for us, for we ourselves, to be natural and satisfied with just enough. You know, the poem says, after eating, I relax and enjoy a nap, right? It's completely ordinary. What could be more ordinary? And I think all of us who know the text have lines that are our favorites. So I'll tell you mine. <clears throat> Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. In fact, the very first time I encountered this poem was when I saw those lines written on the back of someone's raksu, someone who had taken the precepts in my temple. Our teacher had written those lines on her raksu. And I didn't know what it was. I was new to practice. And it, but they just like went straight to my center. You know, I feel the weight of my karmic self kind of resolve or dissolve. And a line that, that I sometimes say in words out loud, or that sort of says itself in me is a great vehicle bodhisattva, trusts without doubt. Those are my two faves. But let's, let's start at the beginning. So I built a grass hut where there is nothing of value, says the poem. You know, what is more impermanent than a grass hut? A grass hut, a grass roofed hut, a grass hut. You know, Sekito sets himself down in impermanence, in things as it is. The hut is not merely in danger of falling down or becoming leaky or blowing down or burning down but of sprouting weeds, right? Now it has been lived here, covered by weeds. It is without stable substance, right? Interpenetrating, inter-arising with everything. It isn't stable in any way. Nothing is. Our thoughts are like fresh weeds also. <laughs> we clear the decks, we head to the zendo, we sit sashin and boom, more weeds. <laughs> this is my experience. But in the hut, there is nothing of value, really nothing to worry about, nothing to attach to, to protect or defend. Maybe you've gone camping when all you had was what you could carry, and you may do with whatever you had with you. You know, you appreciated the one warm sweater you had, or, you know, the one bowl of food that you ate at the end of the trail. 
maybe on retreat you came to appreciate our orioki way of eating where we take what we need and we consume it all and we enact a world of simplicity with our bowls our utensils and cloths and a little bit of water to clean it up with right simple living in a monastery obviously is can be like this <laughs> it isn't always some some people bring a lot of personal stuff with them to a monastery if they're going to be there for a while you know that replicates some degree of comfort that they prefer or is familiar and no one can blame them but it can be a great practice if you go to a place like Tassajara. There's a there's a place called Goodwill. <laughs> Goodwill, as in you know, donated things or abandoned things. Um, it's down in the, the furthest living quarters of Tassajara, a former stable. And there's stuff, and you know, you you realize, oh, I could use a pair of clogs maybe. And you often find what you need in what is there. And without a whole lot of preference, if it fits and it suits your needs, it's yours. Um, people do things like, you know, improvise a little vase for their rooms out of a discarded mug that's lost its handle. It's, just, it's perfect. Right? Everything becomes useful. Everything has value. And nothing is particularly special. It's a, it's a great experience to have. I urge you all go to a monastery if you get a chance. Now, Sekito, like any monk or like any pilgrim in this world, may also value his traveling hat or his walking stick, his robes and his bowls. But he may also not attach to any of it too firmly because he knows and we know that we can and do lose it all. <clears throat> As the Reverend Ben Connolly notes, uh, Ben Connolly is, the, is a teacher at uh, the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, has written a book about the Grassroof Hut, the song of the Grassroof Hut. I'm going to quote him in a couple of places. He notes that the poem shifts at the beginning here from the first person, Sekito, right? I've built a grass hut where nothing, there's nothing of value after eating. I relax and enjoy a nap. He then switches to this impersonal voice. An old man, he says, a great bodhisattva. Right. This is also Sekito who uh, eats his meal and relaxes in, uh, in his nap, ordinary mind realized, just at home in impermanence and not attached to places worldly people live or love, as the poem says. What need is there for thinking that there is somewhere else? The small hut, the poem tells us, includes the entire world. And um, Reverend Ben says, uh, points out something I think is interesting. The words in Chinese that are translated in this translation as includes the entire world um, echo the teaching of the Kegon school of Buddhism, or Kuaiyin in Chinese, um, a school which draws on the very long Avatamsaka Sutra for its, uh, for its teaching and understanding. This sutra is the whole of the Buddha's enlightenment in about 1,500 pages. It's a doorstop. 
we have copies of it in the library if after after session you'd like to look at it. So this is what uh, the Reverend Connolly says. Kuayen Kagan teaching describes the world as being a fourfold realm. And the Chinese characters for these realms are the same one that Sekito uses, translated here as the entire world. The teaching of the fourfold realm is quite complex, says Reverend Ben, but in practical terms, it can be boiled down to the fact that each thing is intimately connected to every other thing. Each thing is an expression of the interdependence of everything else. The whole universe is an expression of each individual thing. And each thing is exactly itself. And then he paraphrases or summarizes, he says, in other words, everything is interdependent. You are just the universe expressing itself. Your actions have infinite impact and each thing is simply itself. You are you. Or as Suzuki Roshi said, when you are you, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so in 10 square feet, an old man, an old person, illuminates forms and their nature. Right? This would calls to my mind anyway, the, the Heart Sutras, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Illuminating forms and their nature is living from this truth. And Sekito did this in the traditional 10 square feet of hermitage. This is an old theme in Chinese poetry, very prominent in Chinese poetry, um, a place of retreat. But for Sekito, it contains everything. Uh, and much later, our 500 years almost later, our uh, founding ancestor Dogen in Japan said in Genjo Koan, which we'll, we'll chant this week, you know, here is the place, here the way unfolds. And in his instructions for Zazen, the Fukan Zazengi, you know, why leave behind the seat that exists in your home and go aimlessly off to the dusty realms of other lands? If you make one misstep, you go astray from the way directly before you. And this also echoes uh, Sekito's uh, teaching in um, the uh, Sandokai. In fact, there are many instructions and exhortations like this to support us right, in not missing the place where we are. Um, and some of the stories about Sekito also point to this. A great vehicle bodhisattva, trust without doubt. Right? A great vehicle, the Mahayana is the big school of Zen, a big school of Buddhism that are particular lineage and school belongs to, the one that is dedicated to saving all beings. Right? A great vehicle, Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. What does she trust? What do you trust? Your own, your own wisdom. Anyone else? A moment. Moment, your own wisdom. David, you're smiling. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. 
the teachings, teachings, <clears throat> things as it is. The Sangha. The Sangha. This body. <laughs> All good. Things as it is, I'll say, this one will say, but as Reverend Connolly says, there is a human tendency to try and feel safe by categorizing, organizing, and shrinking consciousness into something we think we can manage, and then to worry about this shrink, shrunken, limited view of things, which actually makes us feel unsafe. But it doesn't have to be that way. It is possible to let go into not knowing and let all the things we like and don't like appear and disappear. And this is our practice. And he says, it's a way of being we can offer to the world. And I think we hear uh, next an echo of Buddha's parable of the four horses, also Dogen's teaching, uh, which we have delved into in recent weeks, right? Or also the superficial understanding of attaining bodhisattva, skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, this kind of ranking by comparison, right? Because Sekito says, the middling or lowly cannot help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Right? When we hear middling or lowly or these other kinds of um, apparently judgmental uh, terms, words, it may surprise us a little bit that you know a Zen master is thinking that way. Um, Will this hut perishable or not? This is something that you know worldly, middling, or lowly people worry about. And I think these lines address you know the great matter of birth and death, right? Of course, <laughs> huts could <gonna> perish, <laughs> right? Um, but perishable or not, the original master is present. And so I think we can you know dispense with the implied comparison, middling or lowly, and just substitute something like. Those who fear or hate or struggle with impermanence, which is also all of us, right? Like the horses, the, the, you know, the, the excellent horse and the bad horse, we're all those horses at different times or all at once sometimes it feels like. Um, you know, Zen teachers often use language that seems harsh or impatient or judgmental about, they say things like people outside the way, right? Nobody is outside the way. This kind of speech with its edge gets our attention, right? It's, it's like uh, hitting a monk with a whisk. <laughs> Wake up! <laughs> but the original master, perishable or not in the hut, the original master is present, right? Who's that? Who is the original master? <clears throat> Buddha nature. Big mind. Big mind, another another word for that or phrase. Awareness. Awareness. Reality. Reality. Buddha. Getting closer. You are. 
any of us, all of us. It's Shakyamuni and it's Sekito. Don't, don't be confused by this term master, right? Oh, a master, Zen master. You can claim it. Uh, the word for master here in Chinese is also the word for host, the word we sometimes translate as host, uh, which in Chinese Buddhism of, of this time was paired with guest, host and guest, a relationship which expresses the interplay and inseparability of the absolute or total reality and phenomena or things, right? So our presence, the original master here and now is host, including everything, or it can be. So this master, some people call this master the boss, the host, all-inclusive presence and awareness does not dwell in any particular place, as Sekito says here, not in the north, not in the south, not in the east, not in the west, right? And it, in our translation, it says it's firmly based on steadiness, right? not trapped in ideas of this or that, here or there, and practicing equanimity. And, you know, equanimity gets a bad rap. It, it's not the same thing as being uncaring or detached in the sense of emotionally shutting down or spiritually bypassing what is happening, what your experience is, what your eyes and your ears, your body and mind perceive, right? And then, of course, your thoughts. But we have a shining window of presence in the midst of the myriad pine trees of the vast mountain. And it can't be compared to anything, not fabulous palaces or impressive, colorful towers. Just sitting, says Sekito, with head covered, all things are at rest. Now, this head covered is interesting. We don't cover our heads, right? We say, don't wear a hat in Zendo. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think uh, he's referring to um, Bodhidharma. In some of Bodhidharma's depictions, he has his robe over his head. He's facing the wall in the cave, nine years of wall sitting, right? And he, he has pulled his robe up over his head. All things are at rest. Bodhidharma isn't going anywhere. <clears throat> He's also not saying anything. All things are at rest in this place, right here. And then Sekito says, this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Right? Doesn't understand at all. Well, we often hear that not knowing is most intimate. Right? You probably heard that. You know, and Suzuki Roshi famously prized beginner's mind with its many possibilities. Right? In a beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, and in an expert's mind, there are few. But these sound like similar. Not knowing. So we could take this line as referring to not holding fixed views. Right? But we can also remember that intimacy, the word intimacy in Zen usually means dropping boundaries between self and other. But also Bodhidharma replied to the emperor who asked him, who are you? Who are you? After he made some kind of outrageous and uh, difficult to understand statements to the emperor. And the Bodhidharma said, I don't know. 
And as we heard yesterday, often Sekito himself replied to his students saying, I don't know, I don't understand either. <laughs> you know, in one dialogue I quoted, he said that he himself can't comprehend the Buddha Dharma. Uh, here's one short dialogue that I didn't share yesterday. Um, a monk asked, why did the first ancestor, Bodhidharma, first ancestor of Chinese Zen, why did he come from the West? Right? India is west of China. This is a common question. Um, and Sekito responded, ask the temple pillar. <laughs> the monk said, I don't understand. And then Sekito said, I don't understand either. <laughs> so I think head covered and don't know or don't understand are the presence and teaching of Bodhidharma here in this, in this hut, in this text with this teacher. So Sekito then goes on to ask, who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? So I come down to the Zendo and here you all are. <laughs> so we could approach this from the notion of a teacher, you know, a master trying to attract students. Who would proudly arrange seats? And uh, the Reverend Ben suggests that the host or master does not need to invite guests by which he uh, thinks Sekito means things outside themselves, whether thoughts or feelings or memories or anything that you think is not your true self. This is what Connolly says. If you are trying to entice the host to come and be your guest, it's a guest. If enlightenment is a thing to be chased, it's relative. It's an idea that we've made up about something. Enlightenment, the host is none of these. Don't try to entice guests. Ask instead, who? Who? If what I sense, feel, and understand are guests, if my sense of I is a guest, then who is hosting? Who is the host to all these guests? Don't ask with your mind and don't spend time on answers. Just ask with all your heart. Ask with your posture, ask with bare awareness. And I think this is a way of extending the hermitage practice of a monk to our lives in the hubbub. You know, it's good practice advice and accessible to all of us, regardless of where we live or how. Who, who am I? Who is this? Who is the observer saying, oh, now I'm breathing. <laughs> But I think we should not lose sight of Sekito's life story, where after study and awakening and clarifying his understanding, he went to this remote shelf of rock, received or took the name of Stonehead, and rather than founding a monastery or taking up the burden of succeeding to the rank of abbot, he built this small hut. I had no pride in his understanding, no thinking he had something to share. I don't understand, he said or that he was obliged to share, even though he did all those things. He did teach, he did share, he wrote these poems, we're still reading them. And then these important words, which I'm spending the last bit of this talk on, turn around the light to shine within, then just return. Um, and again, I'm drawing on uh, 
the Reverend Connolly, he says, there are seven characters in each line of this poem. And in this line, four of them include the meaning return or come back, right? Two of the other characters carry the meaning shine. And I think it's interesting to know this um, for two reasons. Uh, the first is the phrase, turn around the light to shine within, is an important one. In Japanese, it's the phrase, echo hensho, echo hensho. And it actually appears for the first time in Zen teaching in this poem, in the Song of the Grass Refut. Turn around the light to shine within and just return. I, I didn't realize that until recently. I kind of think that's extraordinary. Um, turning around the light to shine within is not just Sekoto's teaching. We hear about it in Hongzhou, um, in his teaching of um, illumination. Um, and in uh, Linji, who is the founder of the Rinzai school, and many others. And of course, Dogen in the Fukan Sazengi, his instructions for Zazen, turn around the light to shine within and just return. But the first time the full phrase, echo hensho, uh, is used is right here in the Song of the Grassroof Hut. And the other reason I think it's interesting is a line which follows and the one I just gravitated to naturally, open your hands and walk innocent. So I've skipped down a little bit, um, but um, there are, here are some words from a teacher named Furong Daokai, who lived three centuries after Sekito. He says, when you get here, you arrive at the place, when you're present, turn the light around to shine back Echo Hensho, let go your hands and accept it. Open your hands and accept it. And I can't help but think he is referencing Sekito's open your hands and walk innocent with that image. So as we come to the end of this song, and it is a song, although we treat it as a sutra, it's specifically said to be a song. After turning around the light, we come to the vast inconceivable source, which can't be faced or turned away from. It's another really vivid image. Um, and what immediately comes to my mind is the very similar language used by later by Tozan Ryokai, the 11th Chinese Zen ancestor and the founder of the so or a founder of the Soto school in China. Right, so our immediate Chinese ancestor. Um, and this is about three generations or a hundred years after uh, Sekito. You probably know these lines. Turning away and touching are both wrong, for it is like a massive fire. Right? What can't be faced or turned away from? Well, whatever it is, it's like a massive fire. You know, Tozen doesn't really say that this massive fire is the source but it feels like it's implied, right? About this source, the Reverend Connolly says, Buddha never taught that there is a source. That's his view. He told his students that trying to find the ultimate source was not a good use of their time, not conducive to the alleviation of suffering. Reverend Connolly says, Sekito is sort of in agreement with Shakyamuni. He says there is a source, 
but you can't find it since you can neither face it nor turn away from it. Where is it to be found? He says, I think Sekito's idea of a source is not meant to prove something about how the universe works, but instead is meant to foster a certain kind of mind, a certain kind of heart. The next lines say, of Sekito's poem say, meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions, find grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Right? And then let go of hundreds of years. So this reference to ancestral teachers already in Sekito, <laughs> to me, you know, affirms we are trying to understand for ourselves, all by ourselves, how the universe works. This source that can't be named, can't be cognized, can't be described, can't be faced, can't be turned away from. It's congruent with the teaching that because we practice, our, teach, our ancestors are present. And this is something we talked about a little bit yesterday. Right? They're us. They're our family. They're right here. As Dogen says, we're one Buddha and one ancestor. Buddha mind, original face, true self, the source, inescapable because not apart from us. I don't think that this conflicts with Buddha's teaching. And I don't have much to add about the lines, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely that I already talked about. There's really not much more to say. You know, the hundreds of years is everything we carry with us or think is us. You know, it's our traumas, it's our stories, our histories and those of our families and our communities and the times and places we live in. Wouldn't it be great to just open our hands and walk innocent? So what is this hut? Is it our body-mind? Is it here and now? If you want to know the undying person in the hut, Sekito tells us, in this perishable body-mind, do not separate from this skin bag here and now. The skin bag is also our perishable hut, our personal portable perishable hut. And it points us to, and also away from identifying with the most personal aspects of our self, our sense of individual self, our bodies, our thoughts, our memories, our feelings, our sensation, right? They're all perishable. They're not us. You know, probably you all know, a skin bag in early Buddhist teaching is full of disgusting stuff. <laughs> you all know this, right? <laughs> it's full of pus and blood and mucus and shit and piss and undigested food. It's really nasty. <laughs> and practitioners were, were urged to meditate on it, to lessen our attachment to superficial beauty and pleasure and to directly see impermanence. This is really what's underneath this exterior that we think is us, but a skin bag is also empty. Don't deny, don't forget, merge with our true nature, which is undying. 
form and emptiness, emptiness and form. It, this could not be here. We could not be here without the whole universe. Indeed, the true human body, the teaching tells us, Buddha is Buddha's body, which is everything. Realizing this fully is to be free from birth and death. Comments? Questions? Well, thank you so much. I, I don't think I've really appreciated this this uh, song so much until the talk. But I I did always figure that it was about a human being rather than a real hat. And my reason for thinking that was a totally nerdy reason. <laughs> but it says that the hut is 10 square feet. And I said, there's no way anybody could take a nap. And an adult could not take a nap in something 10 square feet. It would be like two feet by five. And I thought, well, that's probably about the area of a human body. So, anyway, or a prison <laughs> cell. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a, it is a traditional, uh, there's actually a book upstairs in the library that happens to be facing out, so I noticed it, called Four Huts. Uh, and it's, I think it's Burton Watson translation of four poems that are not necessarily about Zen practitioners, but about this kind of withdrawal from the world, you know, sometimes by very high class people who want to just live in isolation and enjoy music and wine and birds. And, so this is a, and write poetry. <laughs> so this is a kind of traditional uh, trope. But for a master living in 10 square feet, and it is, it is really small. So how could, it how could it include the entire world? How can your body, how can you include the entire world? But you do. Mel? Is song another word for poem here, or would it have actually been like a song with a melody? Ah, I don't think it was sung. I think it was just written. Yeah, but there are a couple of there are a couple of there's a song of zazen. There's some other texts that have that term song, and they are uh, yeah they take the form uh, of well Dogen Dogen wrote poetry basically too. They they're yeah it's a good question. Um, since I don't know Chinese, I can't really tell you. I don't think it was sung. You want to make up a song? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a tradition of this at Asahara. In fact, these people know some songs that have been composed. It probably rhymes. Yeah. In Chinese. It rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the lines. The, I, I suspect that the, the, the song of the Tulmir Samadhi rhymes. There you go. Yeah, a friend of mine chanted the chorus in Chinese. And, oh. Okay, it rhymes. It rhymes. <laughs> it's a song. Not all poetry rhymes. So I, and I, scans, I, right? And scans. And scans. Yeah, yes. Yeah, like, I knew, yeah scans thought, and thought, something. Thought, 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 thought. Mm -hmm. so. Which is also an aid to memorization. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I expect great things. <laughs> I know you have a guitar in your room. Yeah. Good.
you like this poem? Mm. I know some of you. Some of you have told me you like it. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. My favorite line is. Um, Buying prices together, built a hut. Don't give up. Yeah, I built some huts. Not as permanent as maybe second or a second hut, but it takes a long time to gather all those leaves. Hard. <laughs> and also, the leaves are like the hubris of the forest. They're like the cane. Matter on the ground. If you, uh, there are some structures that are thatched, traditional thatched structures, and they can last for hundreds of years if you maintain them. Like in, uh, like in England, some of these really thick thatched roofs, and in Japan and other places. And if you go up there every year and you know renew them or patch them or whatever, you can keep them going. But they, they're prone to burning down, <laughs> especially when you have open fires. Um, but yeah, they they take a lot of work, a lot of collection of material, and then some skill, actually, in patching something together that's not just like overnight, little nest you make overnight. Yeah. Learn something. I shouldn't have built it that way. That was dumb. <laughs> Sometimes I think we should have the song of the adobe hut. Here in the southwest, <laughs> that'll go back to mud if you, you know, really quickly if it gets wet. Yes. Um, during Kokyo's fishing this summer, and Dokusan with him, I was like, yeah, this is this is probably my favorite chant. And he just looked at me and he said, so metaphorically, what is the grass hut? And I thought it was a great question that I never really considered. Metaphorically. Yeah, like if we. So I wanted to offer that. That's so funny. Metaphorically and or not metaphorically. Uh, in my metaphor, the leaves are delusion. All the karma and gross stuff in my life that I collect together and build up with it. What I have. And it keeps me warm. I say thank you. Well, garbage can be composted, and then it becomes rich soil. It really does keep you warm. I mean, like four feet of leaves will keep you warm yeah. in a cold, cold winter storm. I came across a YouTube channel uh, a year or two ago. It was some dog, I forget it's the dog's name, it was a golden retriever. And the whole thing was clip after clip after clip of these people in some suburban town where there were lots of leaves falling in the right kind of tree to create huge amounts of leaves. They'd open the door and the dog would go racing out and throw itself into this huge pile of leaves. <laughs> and then like there would be this close up of the dog, just the eyes and the tail wagging, wagging, wagging. It was just one video. It was made me so happy. That's <laughs> <laughs> what squirrels do too. They just gather all the leaves together. In fact, the way I learned to build a hut was called a squirrel hut. Squirrel. My teacher called it a squirrel hut because that's what squirrels do. Cover themselves in leaves like a dog. <laughs> Somehow they just know what to do. I think these homeowners just 
created these giant leaf piles. You know, in the suburbs, this is a thing, like you collect them and then you do something with them. And I think they did this purely for the dog. <laughs> they had hundreds of thousands of views of people watching this dog. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a question about um, the book you were referencing. Um, Reverend Oh, Connolly, yeah. What was the name of the book, please? Oh, that's the title. I think it's Inside the Grass Inside hut. the Grass Roof Hut, or the Grass Hut. Inside the Grass Hut. We have it in the library, I'm pretty sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's about 150 pages. If you know the poem, it, it, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say an easy read, but it, you know, it repays your attention, but um, you'll find a lot in there, I think, that is interesting. Um, he talks a lot about practicing with it as a kind of guide to our modern lives, which I didn't, isn't my emphasis, but you find it helpful. Okay. Thank you very much.